I love how the little girl in the video makes the connection between prayer, which is a very spiritual exercise, of course, and the actual effect of that prayer in the everyday lives of the people that she was praying for at the time. It's, uh, it's so simple and yet so powerful to pray a prayer, to have a spiritual conversation with God, and then to see that prayer fulfilled in a tangible way in someone's life. It builds your faith, and I think uh, it is a potent reminder that our God is at work every day in people's lives in very perceptible ways, in unmistakable ways, as he acts on the behalf of us and others uh, as a direct result from our prayers. It is that sense of wonder, I think, that we see so often in children when they experience the reality of something greater than themselves at work in their lives. In fact, it is that sense of wonder that we should never allow ourselves to lose as adults when it comes to God moving in our lives through prayer. In fact, I think we should fight for it. We should resist the temptation toward indifference or even callousness, which I think tries so hard to creep into our hearts and minds when we experience disappointments and misunderstandings subsequent to our prayers. Because, uh, let's face it, sometimes we pray and we don't always see or experience any perceptible change. Sometimes it doesn't appear uh, that maybe anything is happening in response to our prayers, right? I was driving my truck one day down the road, and I had my daughter, Avery, behind me in the car seat. She was much younger then. And if you know my daughter, you know that she's given to be a little dramatic from time to time. <clears throat> and so she's back there rubbing her leg, and she's moaning like her leg is about to fall off. And she's saying, oh, Daddy my leg hurts, my leg hurts. And I said, honey, it'll be okay. You know, it'll, it'll feel better in a while. Try not to think about it. No, daddy, my, my, my leg hurts. It really hurts. And I said, okay, well, how about we pray for it, okay? And she said, that'd be good. So as I'm driving, I don't suggest you try this at home. I reach back and put my other hand on her leg and I'm driving down the road and I'm praying, Lord, Father, would you, would you please touch Avery right now? I just ask you, Lord, that whatever's going on inside her body, that you'd make her feel better. I pray that you'd, you know, take the pain away out of this leg and that whatever's happening, you just heal her, Lord, and make her feel better so that she won't be hurting anymore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's about two seconds of silence and she said, well, that didn't work. <laughs> I said, come on, what do you mean? She said, it still hurts. <laughs> There are certainly times when we don't always see an, an immediate result from our prayers, right? And in truth, there are times when maybe we don't ever seem to see a result from our prayers. I think if we're being honest with ourselves. And so the next time we pray, it can be easy to become a little more cautious with our faith. We hold back hope a little bit because no one likes to be disappointed. And so we try to protect ourselves from being let down the next time we pray. And I think if that becomes a pattern in our life, it won't take long before we begin praying faithless prayers out of a religious duty rather than praying faith-filled prayers out of a settled confidence and a real experience that God is indeed listening and answering our prayers. So why do we sometimes see tangible results from our prayers and at other times we don't? Well, there are different reasons for that. Scripture teaches us that under certain circumstances, God actually won't hear our prayers or won't listen 
to our prayers. We find that in Isaiah 1.15 and 1 Peter 3.7. We see other instances where he doesn't grant our requests in prayer. 2 Corinthians 12.7 and 8 and James 4.3 are examples of that. And yet we see occasions where the answer comes... But it's not what we wanted or expected. And, and we certainly see that in the lives of both Job and Jonah in Scripture. And so today, we're going to talk about our approach to prayer and see if we can maybe make some sense out of why we don't always experience the results that we're hoping for when we pray. Because although it is easy... And I think perhaps has become all too common for Christians to say things to people like, well, just pray, brother, and God will give you the desires of your heart. Or, you know, as long as we agree together in prayer, anything that we ask will be given to us. When we do that without any further explanation, what we're really doing is a disservice to others and to our gospel witness. Anytime that we take fragments of scripture like those out of context and we, we try to use them or encourage others to use them uh, almost as an incantation, like a, like a magic formula with guaranteed results just because it's written in the Bible. Now, of course, those scriptures are written in the Bible. And the Bible is, I believe, the inspired, infallible, and inerrant Word of God. So what gives? Why is it a mistake to take those kinds of very specific verses and then apply them in a very broad and general way? Well, the answer lies in correctly understanding what the Bible says regarding prayer in proper context. Those, those passages I just mentioned, uh, which have to do, by the way, with praying God's will, are often taken out of context and then they're misapplied. But here's the good news, okay? There actually are very sound and solid principles in Scripture concerning prayer that can be reliably applied daily in our own prayer lives to the point that we can and should expect our prayers to be effectual, meaning uh, we can expect them to have a real and, and potent effect in the everyday lives of ourselves and, and other people that we pray for. James wrote in chapter 5, verse 16 of his letter, he said, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Well, that's a pretty unambiguous statement. It's a very clear statement. And so instead of allowing disappointment and faithlessness and misunderstanding and misapplication to weaken or cheapen the way that we pray... Let's pray and understand, or try to understand how prayer was applied by those in Scripture who consistently saw tremendous results from their prayers. I think we have a lot to learn from those folks because the truth is there is prayer that works. There is prayer that works, and it's not a magic formula. It is simply a matter of faithfully praying in a manner that is consistent with the teachings of Scripture properly understood and applied. And so as we continue in our sermon series today, we're studying our way through the book of Daniel. We're going to talk about prayer that works as we find Daniel here in chapter 9 engaged in some really serious prayer of his own as a result of his latest revelation from God, okay? So let's turn there together, uh, picking up where we left off last week to Daniel chapter 9. And uh, we'll have it on the screens, I think, if you'd prefer to read it that way as well. Let's start out with the first three verses. Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. 
It says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Asaurus, uh, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Now, these first three verses are profoundly important when it comes to the matter of how we should pray. In verse 2, it says that Daniel was reading the scriptures. In fact, he was poring over the scrolls of Jeremiah the prophet in what is today Jeremiah chapter 25, uh, verses 11 through 12, and, and chapter 9, verses 10 and 11 in our modern translations of the Old Testament. Uh, there's a reference there to the desolations of Jerusalem lasting for 70 years. And so as soon as he perceived, as soon as he realized that there was a significant promise in those scriptures that applied to his life and those that he loved, he immediately turned his face to God and began seeking him in prayer for the fulfillment of that promise, which we'll see in just a moment. The point being, the single greatest guarantee for us that we are without question praying God's will for our own lives and for the lives of others is when we pray His Word. It's when we pray His Word. And why is it so important that we pray His will? Well, because in John, uh, 1 John 5, 14 and 15, John says this is the confidence that we have toward Him. If you want to have confidence in your prayer life, he says if we ask anything according to His will... He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of Him. So it's paramount that when we pray, if we truly want our prayers to be heard and answered, it is essential that we pray according to God's will. Because when we pray according to our own will, particularly when that is apart from His will, we're actually assured in Scripture that our prayers will not be answered. James 4.3 says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. In other words, you're asking for what you want rather than what God wants, which is exactly, by the way, uh, how those verses I mentioned earlier so often get misapplied. See, when we try to use them to twist God's arm to get Him to do our will, often with little or no regard for His will on the matter. But look, God isn't a cosmic vending machine, right? Where we put in a little prayer and we get a treat back. No, we must seek His will in prayer over our own will. And, and so nothing is more key to getting the fulfillment that we seek in prayer than knowing that we're praying God's will. And the ultimate guarantee to praying God's will is praying God's word precisely because it's His Word. God cannot contradict Himself. And so if there's a promise in God's Word that applies to us, if there are commands for our lives, if there are instructions for us to follow, we can and should with great confidence pray those promises and commands and instructions over our own lives, fully expecting them to be fulfilled. 
I love what Charles Spurgeon once said. He said, oh, that you studied your Bibles more. Oh, that we all did. How we could plead the promises. How often we should prevail with God when we could hold him to his word and say, fulfill this word unto thy servant whereon thou hast caused me to hope. Oh, it is grand praying when our mouth is full of God's word, for there is no word that can prevail with him like his own. Similarly, John Calvin once said, Nothing, therefore, can be better for us than to ask for what he has promised. Okay? It should be a matter of course in our prayer life to pray God's word over ourselves daily and over each other, which is distinctly why, by the way, when we pray for the sick here at Upcountry Church, we follow the instructions given to us by James to anoint the sick with oil. We put a drop of oil on that person and we pray with them with, with great faith for those who are suffering. You'll often hear me pray something to the effect of, Lord, we anoint this person with oil. We pray for them now with all faith for their healing according to your word. That's why we do that. In other words, God, I'm just doing what you've told me to do. Okay, now, of course, the rub comes in. The problem is because not every single specific need that we face in life is necessarily always addressed specifically in Scripture, right? So what do we do then? Well, then we pray, we, we petition God, we make our request, but we always end that prayer with, Lord, your will be done, whatever that is. And then we have to be willing to accept whatever that is. Otherwise, we'll find ourselves constantly out of sorts with God, which is not a place, by the way, that any of us wants to be. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9, Paul writes, To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times, Paul says, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, obviously, Paul was praying for healing from whatever uh, this malady was, and we don't know specifically what it was because he doesn't say. But the point is, God's will was to allow Paul to carry this burden in his body so that he would not become conceited for all of the incredibly powerful things that God was doing in and through Paul's life. We're not always guaranteed relief from every burden that we carry, at least not, at least not in this life. And that can be a hard pill for us to swallow sometimes, but there's always a reason. There's always a reason that God allows us to carry burdens at times in our lives. And that reason is always for the sake of his will being accomplished. And of course, we know that Paul understood this, that God uses even the burdens in our own lives for our ultimate good. He tells us in Romans 8.28, very familiar passage for those who love God, all things, he says, not just the good things, he says, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And, and he backs that statement up in his letter to the Corinthians right after explaining that God refuses to answer his prayer and says instead, my, my grace is sufficient for you. So God doesn't give Paul the answer that he's looking for. And instead, he's allowed to carry this uh, physical burden in his body. In verses 9 and 10, Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Are you kidding me? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, Paul says, I'm content. 
with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Now, apart from Christ working in our lives, that is a really weird thing to say. Think about that. How many of us actually think that way? I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. I think it's probably safe to say that most Christians today, at least in Western culture, are not content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. And yet Paul was able to say that with confidence and sincerity because he knew that in the end, God was working all things together for Paul's own good. And so just as Jesus prayed in Luke twenty-two forty-two, right before his crucifixion, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We too must always be focused on God's will before our own if we, if we are to expect our prayers to be fulfilled. And again, the surefire way to do that is to pray his word whenever possible, which is exactly what Daniel was doing here. Notice there was no hesitation in him. Once he, he uh, discovered God's promise in his word to Daniel and his fellow Hebrews, Daniel said, I perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to God seeking him by prayer. As soon as he realized that there was a promise in God's word for him that was yet to be fulfilled in his life, he turned his face to God. This is very deliberate language about a very deliberate action. Daniel is studying scripture. He discovers a promise for him and his people, namely that these desolations of, of God's people were nearly over and they would soon be able to return home. And so he takes that promise straight to God in prayer because he desperately wants God's word to be fulfilled in his life and in the lives of his people. And of course, Daniel knew that God was sovereign he knew that God would make good on his promises, so why bother praying about it? Because Daniel also understood the very real power, as James says, that praying both God's word in the spirit realm could have in affecting his life and other people's lives in the natural realm. Very real effect to prayer, Daniel understood. He knew that prayers and petitions, requests according to God's word, had great power because God undeniably acts on our behalf when we pray according to his will. By the way, Daniel's prayer here in chapter 9 dovetails perfectly all the way through with Jesus' own instruction to his disciples about how they should pray. Daniel knew to pray for God's will to be done here on earth, just as Jesus instructed his disciples. Matthew 6, 9, and 10, he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, praying God's will be done equals powerful and effective prayer. And the best guarantee for that, uh, for us to know that we're praying his will is when we pray his word. Let's keep reading in the story now. Verses 4 through 17. 
He says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we've sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, and we've not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice, and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. And now therefore, our God, O oh our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O oh Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. So not only did Daniel pray God's word over himself and his people once he discovers God's promise for them that's written in the book of Jeremiah, but even here, he, he repeatedly references the curse and the oath and the Mosaic law, uh, both in, in Leviticus 26, uh, 14 through 45, and Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 68. And so even as Daniel continues to pray God's word, he also prays with repentance. Much like praying God's word, praying with repentance is entirely necessary if we want our prayers to be heard and answered. Not only because we, we're, of course, commanded to repent from sin all throughout Scripture. As Peter says in Acts 3.19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. So, of course, we repent because we're commanded to, but also because unrepentant sin blocks our prayers. In Isaiah 1, 15 through 17, we see God reject his people's worship and prayers because of their sin and hypocrisy. He says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. James 5.16, he says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. 
In other words, if you want God to listen to your prayers and answer your prayers, repent of your sin if there's sin in your life. Now, every one of us commits sin. Those of us who have been saved and now belong to God, we exist as members of His body only, only by His grace. It is unequivocally, it has nothing to do with any merit of our own whatsoever. We all sin. I love how John Piper put it. He wrote, you are not perfect. Nobody will be perfect before death. The question is, are you fighting? Are you fighting sin? I don't care how many times you fall down. If you get up fighting, you are a child of God. Okay? We all sin, but we don't have to surrender to that sin. Even when we fall, even when we fail, no matter how hard or how often, we should always continue to fight. And the first weapon that we wield in that fight against sin is repentance through prayer. It is irreplaceable in an effective prayer life. It is an unmistakable characteristic of those whom we see in Scripture that consistently prayed powerful prayers that actually made a difference in the lives of those being prayed for. And again, if we look at the way that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, we find that repentance was a key part of that instruction as he led them. Again, in Matthew 6, uh, verses 9 through 12, he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, when Jesus says forgive us our debts, he's not talking about money that we owe. Right? He's telling them to repent for their sin, which hinders their fellowship with God. Repent so that fellowship can be restored. Ephesians 4, 30 through 32, Paul says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So when we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit, which hinders our fellowship with Him. And so if we want God to hear and answer our prayers, we must remain in fellowship with Him, which means praying with repentance, just as Daniel did. And boy, did he ever. Verse 3 says that he fasted, he stopped eating, he clothed himself in sackcloth and ashes, which were signs of intense mourning and repentance. Sackcloth was rough, uh, material, rough clothing, which represented abject need uh, to the Hebrews. And ashes were a traditional symbol of grief and humility. So obviously, uh, this wasn't some kind of simple, quick, religious token prayer. Now, th this was a deeply felt and deeply expressed yearning from Daniel's soul, an aching for God to forgive him and his fellow Hebrew people for their sin and lack of faithfulness to God and his word. And if we want our prayers to be heard and answered, they too must, they must, they must be interwoven with a deep-seated and heartfelt cry of repentance for our sin when there's sin in our lives, all right? Let's keep reading. Verses 18 and 19. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do, uh, do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. 
Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel prayed God's word. He prayed with repentance and he prayed with humility. I love verse 18 here. He says, we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. You see, Daniel understood who God was and who he was in relationship to his God. This is a point that we would do well to pay attention to. Throughout the New Testament, there are different words that are used in our English translations to describe Christians. The word servants is used. Sometimes the word bond servants is used. The actual word Christian is used just three times. Sheep, followers, right, and on and on. When you look at the original Greek translation of all of these designations, anytime a Christian is referred to in the New Testament, the Greek word that is used far and away more than any other is the word doulos. It literally means slave. In Romans 6, 20 through 23, Paul says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For though the end of those things is death, but now you have been set free from sin and have become, what, slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life uh, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, we're children of God. Yes, we are His chosen. Yes, we are His body. Yes, we are His priesthood. But we are also very much His possession. We belong to Him. We are slaves of Christ. There are half a dozen words in the Greek language that can mean servant, but doulos, or slave, is used more than any of them. And whenever that word is used, both in the New Testament and, by the way, in secular Greek literature, it always and only means slave. Not servant. It literally means slave. And it's important to understand the difference between a servant and a slave, particularly when this was being written, because a servant in uh, Greco-Roman culture was someone who was hired. A slave was someone who was owned. Big difference. In, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Paul says, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. 124 times in the New Testament alone, the writers of those books referred to themselves and to us, incidentally, as doulos, slaves. All throughout Scripture, believers are referred to as slaves of God or slaves of Christ. To New Testament believers, the terms Christian and slave were synonymous. To them, being a true Christian meant that you were a slave of Christ and following Him was the, the sum of your entire existence. There's a Scottish pastor, Alexander McLaren, he, he put it this way. The true position then for a man is to be God's slave. Absolute submission, unconditional obedience on the slave's part and on the part of the master, complete ownership. The right of life and death, the right of disposing of all goods and chattels, possessions, the right of issuing of commandments without a reason, the right to expect that those commandments shall be swiftly, unhesitatingly, punctiliously, and completely performed. These things inhere in our relation to God. Blessed the man who has learned that they do and has accepted them as his highest glory and the security of his most blessed life. For brethren, such submission 
absolute and unconditional, the blending and the absorption of my own will in his will is the secret of all that makes manhood glorious and great and happy. In the New Testament, these names of slave and owner are transferred to Christians and Jesus Christ. Total subjugation to God. And I, I think maybe in our culture it can be hard for us to relate to that. But the truth is Christians are truly slaves of Christ. We belong to God. It's taken me most of my life to get this. Daniel understood this well. He knew that God was supremely sovereign over his life in every way. And he modeled that in his humble prayer to God, just as Jesus did in his instruction to his disciples. Again, Matthew chapter 6, he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. In other words, we humbly recognize that we depend on you alone for every single need, every single moment of every single day. That is the point. If we want our prayers to work, if we want to be able to expect to see real results from our prayers, we must recognize with great humility that we are utterly and completely reliant upon God to answer every single one of those prayers and to meet every single one of those needs. Daniel prayed, we do not present our pleas to you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. In other words, no matter how good we ever hope to be, we still cannot achieve, achieve anything of lasting value without you, God. That is praying with humility, okay? Let's continue our story, verses 20 uh, through 23. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. And I've come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved, therefore consider the word and understand the vision. Okay, so while Daniel's praying, the angel Gabriel shows up as before to give Daniel a revelation about the text in Jeremiah that he'd been studying and praying about earlier. And we're going to come back to this portion of our story in a moment to establish really the ultimate result of praying like Daniel did and like Jesus taught us to. But, but first, let's read the rest of this chapter and we'll take a look at the very specific answer to Daniel's prayer. So starting at verse 24 to the end of the chapter, it says, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression to put an end to sin to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. And then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. 
Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So before we get into the details of this revelation to Daniel, it's worth noting that Gabriel's overall message here to Daniel was simply, yes, Daniel, the request that you've been praying about for the, for the state of your people and your city to be transformed, yes, they're going to be answered. This is an affirmation from God to Daniel as a direct answer to his prayers. In other words, Daniel's prayer is a great example to us of prayer that works. The very year of Daniel's request in prayer was the initial uh, end of the desolations of Jerusalem as King Cyrus allowed God's people to begin returning home. And so again, Daniel's prayers throughout his life, as we've seen all through this book that we've been studying through, have been consistently effective. And as with the interpretations of Daniel's earlier visions, this revelation by Gabriel is certainly multi-layered in its meaning, as the revelation here speaks not only of the end of the time of exile for the Jews in Babylon, but Gabriel is, is also describing the end of the ultimate desolations of Jerusalem and the atoning work of Christ, which was yet to come. The 70-year time of the Babylonian exile, as prophesied by Jeremiah, was a small part of the larger plan of God, the great plan of God that we talked about last week. And so, as Gabriel explains, the 70 weeks, or 77s, looks much farther into the future. So, if you look at the 77s as a literal uh, time period, 490 years, and you go back to the decree made by King Artaxerxes regarding the, the rebuilding of the city Jerusalem, which you can read about in Ezra chapter 7, that decree by the king occurred in 458 B.C. And if you add 490 years to 458 B.C., keeping in mind that uh, there's no year zero between B.C. and A.D., you end up at the year A.D. 33. It's the year Jesus was crucified and the new covenant was fulfilled. Now with that in mind, let's go back and look what Gabriel is revealing to Daniel. Verse 24, he says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. When Jesus died on the cross, he conquered sin and death, he atoned for our iniquity. He made everlasting righteousness available to all. He sealed the vision and prophecy of the new covenant. And of course, he himself embodies the holy anointing. All right, and then verses 25 and 26. Gabriel says that from the going out of the word to restore and, and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. So for an initial seven sevens or 49 years from 458 B.C. to 409 B.C., Jerusalem is being rebuilt and restored. And then Gabriel says, For 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. So there's a, a troubled period of time, and then an anointed one shall be cut off. And the phrase anointed one in the Hebrew is the word Mashiach, from which the word Messiah is derived. And so the Messiah shall be cut off, referring to what? His crucifixion. And although 
there is debate about all prophetic scriptures, of course, including this one. The final verse in this chapter is especially argued by some to represent the Roman general Titus, whose army destroyed Jerusalem in A.D. 70, while others believe it represents the Antichrist at the end of the age. And quite frankly, as multi-layered as Daniel's visions are, I personally have no problem believing that it could be a representation of both, as we see God use people and events all throughout Scripture to prefigure other people and other events. And so although we cannot say with certainty what the end of this revelation describes, we know that Daniel is being given a picture, without a doubt, of the coming of Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross. And that is the point that I want to spend our final moments focused on this morning. In fact, this is the part of the sermon that I've been waiting all week to tell you about because it is simply wonderful. If we go back to verse 23, Gabriel says to Daniel, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out which is in and of itself fantastic. The fact that at the very beginning of Daniel's prayer, there was a response by God without Daniel even realizing it. Gabriel says at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. Okay, When we pray God's word with repentance and humility, oftentimes he responds to that prayer immediately before we even finish praying. Now, I find that to be completely awesome to realize, but that's not even the best part because Gabriel continues. He says, And I've come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. When Gabriel says that Daniel is greatly loved, that's the Hebrew word kemda, which means beloved. Okay, Daniel is described as God's beloved. That Hebrew word is used throughout the Old Testament to describe all sorts of precious and costly things like gold and silver and riches and priceless items. But when it comes to people, it is only used to describe Daniel. This is the one that God calls his beloved, right? This is the same one who under exile... God chose to reveal Jesus Christ to, as we've seen, through great apocalyptic visions that made him tremble with awe and wonder. Now, there's a Greek counterpart to that word, which is the word agapeo, which also means beloved. And of all of Jesus' original disciples in the New Testament, we find just one who is referred to as the beloved disciple. It's John. He's described in John 13, 23 as the disciple whom Jesus loved, Agapeo. And of all those disciples, guess which one God chose while he was in exile on the island of Patmos to reveal Jesus Christ to through great apocalyptic visions that made him tremble with awe and wonder. You guessed it. It's John, Jesus' beloved Disciple. So Daniel, God's beloved, exiled in Babylon, is given a revelation of the first coming of Christ. John, Jesus' beloved, exiled on Patmos, is given a revelation of the second coming of Christ. And if that isn't awesome enough to understand, here's the best part. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, the word agapeo is used over and over and over again to describe someone else. Someone other than Daniel and someone other than John. Now guess who it is? It's us. It's us. 
You see, we do not belong to this world. We're exiles on this earth, according to 1 Peter 2.11. And God has chosen us, His beloved, He says, to reveal His Son to by giving us His Holy Spirit to live inside of us so that just like Daniel and just like John, we could know the power and wonder and awe that comes from the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so God has chosen to reveal His Son to us, His beloved, so that we could share that revelation with the rest of the world, just as Daniel did and just as John did. Now let that sink in for a minute. Are you kidding me? We are described in the same category as Daniel and John. Which means, by the way, that we have the same responsibility as Daniel and John to share that revelation. That truth is nothing short of awesome. It's awesome when you allow that to really sink in. Now, let's bring it back to the subject of prayer. Yes, God gives specific answers to specific prayers according to His will. Yes, when we ask for provision, He provides. When we ask for healing, He heals. When we ask for guidance, He gives understanding. But the ultimate answer to every single prayer and to every single need and every single desire and every single lack in our lives is Jesus Christ. You see, prayer that works is prayer that brings the ultimate revelation of Jesus Christ in the midst of every need. Because every supply and every healing and every answer is all provided for in the person of Jesus Christ. So when we pray, we don't simply need a new job or better health or some direction in life, although all of that is valid. But if that is all that we receive through prayer, then we're just living from handout to handout. No, what we need more than anything else in our lives is a fresh revelation of Jesus Christ every single time that we pray, because that is where our ultimate provision will come from. It's what Daniel teaches us. It's what Jesus teaches us when he taught his disciples how to pray. It's how we position ourselves, how we posture ourselves th through prayer so that with the greatest confidence, we can know that our prayers are in fact being heard and that we're able to receive that ultimate revelation of Jesus Christ, which is what we need more than anything else. And that happens when we pray his word with sincere repentance and all humility because in the end prayer that works is prayer that comes from the hearts of those whom he calls my beloved let's pray